You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Excerpt from a pamphlet titled A Tempest in Suffolk. Sunday being the 4th of this August in the year of our Lord, 1577, to the amazing and singular astonishment of the present beholders, at a certain town called Bungie, not ten miles past the city of Norwich, there fell from heaven an exceeding great and terrible tempest, sudden and violent between nine of the clock in the morning and ten of the day aforesaid. This tempest took beginning with a rain, which fell with wonderful force, with no less violence than abundance, which made the storm so much the more extreme and terrible. This tempest was not simply of rain, but also of lightning and thunder, the flashing of the one whereof was so rare and vehement, and the roaring noise of the other so forcible and violent, that it made not only people perplexed in mind and at their wits' end, There were assembled at the same season to hear divine service and common prayer, according to order, in the parish church of the said town of Bungie, the people thereabouts inhabiting who were witnesses of the strange and suddenness of the storm. Immediately hereupon there appeared in a most horrible similitude and likeness to the congregation then in their present, a dog, as they might discern it, of a black color, at the sight whereof, together with the fearful flashes of fire that were seen, moved such admiration in the minds of the assembly that they thought doomsday was already come. This black dog, or the devil in such likeness, running all along down the body of the church with great swiftness and incredible haste, among the people in a visible form and shape, passed between two persons as they were kneeling upon their knees and occupied in prayer, as it seemed, wrung their necks of them both at one instant clean backward, insomuch that even in a moment where they kneeled, they strangely died. The Black Beast of Bungie next on Monster Talk. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I can hardly believe it, but this is our 50th episode. It seems like only yesterday when we were talking to Todd Disotel about DNA and Bigfoot for our very first episode. I've learned a lot so far, and hopefully you have too. 
Today, Ben, Karen, and I discuss Legends of Spectral Hounds with Professor David Waldron. David's a frequent contributor at a Facebook group, so if you have questions after this episode, come on over and post them. Monster Dog. Tonight we're going to... I always say tonight. You know, it might not be tonight. Our listeners could be getting up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. At some random time of day. Wow. (laughs) But the right time to listen to Monster Dog would be at night. Right? You would think so. (laughs) Just before bed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Or just before you have to walk upstairs in the dark to bed, right? So... (laughs) Either that or listen to it just before you go to investigate that that weird noise in the basement. Yeah, exactly. On a stormy night. I've, have you ever actually had like a weird noise in your house, so an unusual noise that you needed to go investigate? Uh yes. I I, I remember when I, I was. We all. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a. I remember like when I I was engaged to get married and uh, still living in sin, if you know what I mean. And uh, the uh, one night there was like a really loud bang, like somebody was banging on the um, the outside door to our apartment. We lived on the ground floor. And, uh, I, my wife, I, I was sleeping right through it, apparently. And my wife, like, woke me up and said, there's something banging on the house. There's something out there. <laughs> I looked up. I was like, who is it? <laughs> she wasn't your wife then. <laughs> well, she wasn't. She is now. So, but I just, all I did was I said, who is it? And she, she looked at me and it was like this absolute look of disgust and said, I- I'll take care of it. And she got out of bed to go see what it was. <laughs> uh. I, I went back to sleep. She still brings that up 12 years later. <laughs> very, very manly of you. I was more tired Who than afraid. Right? Don't hurt us. <laughs> Go away. I'm asleep. <laughs> but I think we've got lots of, uh, we've got creatures living in the roof of our house here. And uh, there's, there's always some strange noise outside. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is Colorado. Lots of wildlife. and We, just ha- we have to do a show about Jeff. Creaking, yes, we do. <laughs> creaking house noises, settling house noises, and, and all that sort of stuff. I have big plans for Jeff. I don't want to just do a, a little overview. I want to do something very special for that. So, uh, the oh. talking mongoose for the listeners who don't know Jeff, we we have to do something really good for that. But, I, I have something in mind. I have something in mind. I, I want to spoil it for oh. anybody, but you, uh, I have to cut this part out. But here's what I want to do. Oh, that'd be cool. Sounds sounds like an awesome I, idea. I think that'd be fun. All right. So black dogs. Black dogs. But I, I have to tell you that, like, do you guys have a favorite black dog story? Or, uh, or was that anything that it really figured into your upbringing, folklore-wise? I think growing up in Australia, it was more big cats than dogs, really. Ben? But- I got bit by Doberman. Mm, okay. For me, I, you know, I, I think we've talked before about, I think we all come from a background of having read a lot of paranormal books growing up. Right. Uh, the, the the Devon Hound is this weird oh. uh, black dog that has no head. And when I was a kid reading about that dog, I was like, I don't know why. Like as an adult, I'm like, why would the dog have no head? That is not that scary to me. But he was like, as, driving a coach as a kid, <laughs> he was headless and he drove a coach <laughs> In, underneath the cabinet. And then the dog would like other dogs would try to get after the food that. No. You were a little commercial with the little wagon that would run yeah, under the, yeah. the gravy train. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I, I, I love black hounds. And, and of course, they also figured into the Harry Potter stories. Uh, is it, what was it? The, uh, the Grimm, right? As an omen. So. So why are they always black? Yeah. Why, what's up with that? Exactly. Right. 
racist, I think. Why has it got to be a black dog? Right. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I the, just from a, from a folklore point of view, you know, from what I recall is that uh, there were a couple main colors that were associated with the devil and they were they were black and red. Yeah. Uh, not so true. much green red or blue eyes. or anything. Yeah. So it, it makes sense that, you know, that the things that are you know, perceived to be demonic or unusual or otherworldly would probably be either or black or red or, or often, you know, as, as, as Karen noted, black and red, you know, black creatures with red eyes. Same thing with the Chupacabra. Um, and the University you know, of Georgia. <laughs> red eyes? <laughs> no, black and red and a, and a dog. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah so oh. I could tell you an actual true story uh, involving a black dog that happened to me, uh, if you're interested. I think. Tell us. <laughs> I had that. Uh, you know, you wouldn't know this by looking at me, um, but but I used to be an avid runner, um, and before I joined the Navy, I had to lose quite a bit of weight, but I, I ran all the time, and I'd run at night because I was working during the day, and um, near my neighborhood, or I guess in my neighborhood, um, there was a woman who had this dog, uh, a big black Labrador, uh, that her husband ran a junkyard, and um, it was basically a junkyard dog in the classic sense of the word, but it was pretty friendly and it would, it used to chase me. And then at some point it just started running with me for part of my run. It would run like from its house, uh, maybe like two blocks and then it would kind of drop off and go back home. But it was friendly. It was a very friendly dog, but a very strange looking dog. Cause it had an underbite. And so it's lower jaw <laughs> its lower. Its teeth actually came out past, uh, you know, it's, it's upper, not a lip, but whatever the upper part of a dog's mouth is called. Mm. And then it only had one eye. It had like the other eye had been torn out in a dog fight. <laughs> and it was covered uh, in scars, you know, a big heavy set dog though. But it became a regular part of my running routine that when I passed her house, the dog would be out there, come join me for my run. And then, uh, you know, I'd go off into the distance and then eventually it would drop off. And, uh, you know, I liked that. It was kind of fun. And, and then when I got out of the Navy and came back home, um, I asked about the dog, and my mom told me that uh, what had happened was the dog, the the uh, dog had died. I think it was hit by a car, and um, so I was I was like, oh, that's so sad. I, I'd only been out, you know, of the navy for a little while, and I started running uh, there in my home neighborhood. And one night I was out running, and I heard something behind me, and turned around, and there was the dog, and I, it, it, I, it scared the. The blue Jesus out of me. I, I, <laughs> I think I ran faster than I've ever run before. It was trying desperately to keep up with me, but I was like hell no, right? Was it the dog? <laughs> well, what happened was uh, I ran away and then found a different way to get back home. And then the next morning, I went over to her house and asked her about the dog. And I said, "My mom said your dog died." And then she gave me a funny look and she said, "Well, uh." The dog catcher was after me because I kept him off his leash all the time. So I told them it died. <laughs> and I only let him out late at night. <laughs> ah, interesting. That is I a was cool thinking story. this was sounding like one of those hitchhiker stories. Yeah. It, 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 so, yeah, the dog was actually the, – the dog was still alive but had become an inside-the-house dog. Except uh, occasionally she let it out at night. And uh, I just happened to uh, – witness it but it was i was really glad she came clean with me otherwise i would have had yet another not paranormal experience that i thought was paranormal on my great story yeah so creepy dog to see. i tell you that was really i mean if you're going to see a dog uh that's ghostly you know that weird is white teeth gleaming and the one eye it's, it was mm. <laughs> <laughs> it had a fearsome appearance but a gentle disposition so uh i thought that was kind of fun and topical so very. Cool. Um, 
Yeah, so I, I I've read a lot of these legends, um, but um, I I think the the alien big cats, these you know big cats that are uh, in places where they shouldn't be, uh, like in England and whatnot, get a lot more press these days than uh, black dog stories. Yeah, that, that's what I've I found. I mean, you know, especially like in Fourteen Times and, and elsewhere, it's usually the ABCs, the alien black cats, the people are are yelling about. Yeah, I wonder if people just find them somehow more plausible. Maybe, but they they do seem to have a really strong you know spiritual connection. I mean, um, in the book that we are going to be talking about, uh, in the book, you know, he talks about it uh, being uh, like an omen almost that that people associated seeing the dog with bad things happening. But I, I found it very interesting because in this legend of this black dog uh, of Bungie. The the dog, uh, its first appearance is this horrific and fatal uh, appearance inside a church, and and you know I'd always sort of imagine coming up from a uh, very you know religious background that uh, if you were inside a church, that's one place where you might be immune to the the, yeah. the scourge of evil. So it'll be interesting to find out what's up with that. So monster dog. Today we're going to talk to. Dr. David Waldron, who is a lecturer in history and anthropology at the University of Ballarat. And he's also the co-author of Shock, the Black Dog of Bungay. Hey, uh, how can I help you? Okay, David, what's the main story of the Black Dog of Bungay? Well, the main story of the Black Dog of Bungay is that in 1577, on August 4th, in what was described at the time of a storm of rain, hail and thunder, such as never seen the like is how they put it at the time, the story goes that the main church there in St. Mary's, in the centre of town, was attacked by a huge spectral black hound that burst in through the church doors. It would gripe people on the back and leave them shriveled and distended like a leather purse with the strings drawn shut, was how it was described. And uh, the story goes, at least it's told in a pamphlet by a Protestant preacher, Abraham Fleming in London, that a number of people were killed, uh, the church was struck by lightning, the... Uh, main steeple of the church fell down, and so on. It's become part of the town's uh, folklore. Really, it's endemic. You go to Bungie, everything's black dog this, black dog that, black dog judo team, black dog football team, black dog antiques, you name it, it's black dog. It's become a central fo- uh, It's a central focus of town identity. If you like, if you go anywhere near Inverness in Scotland, everything's Nessie. In Bungie, everything's black dog. A uh, story from... Uh, the Protestant Reformation, the 1577 story. Uh, in the uh, 1600s, 1700s, it sort of fades away. There's a few stories of things linked to the witch trials from neighbouring areas in 1640s, that sort of thing. Uh, later on, uh, in the 19th century, it gets uh, taken up as a symbol of its connection to eternal Celtic and pagan identity. It gets reconfigured for tourism when the town's economy collapses in the 1930s. And today it's, you know, quite often recycled for popular culture. I think uh, the computer game The Witcher, for instance, has a replay of the Black Dog of Bungie story. Um, there's songs about it, you know, pop songs about it, and metal songs about it, that sort of thing. So it's, it's one of those uh, stories coming out of town, town turmoil and the Reformation that has uh, just taken off like wildfire. 
Can you give us some broader context or background to the English black dog stories? I know that there's a, a strong tradition of those throughout the region. And uh, so how, how does this fit into the, the broader context? Well, um, black dog stories are pretty much ubiquitous across the entire British Isles, but also through most of Europe. And for that matter, um, I'd ask you, argue they're almost ubiquitous worldwide. I mean, for instance, I was talking to a colleague of mine who's an anthropologist and historian of Australian Aboriginal culture, and he was uh, talking about a story of a black dingo that if it spoke to you would turn, turn you into stone. I think there's a broader tradition with the role of dogs in general, where they these animals that sort of sit on the boundary. We relate to them almost like they're human. We anthropomorphize the animals. We engage with them, but they're also creatures as carrion feeders that are associated with death. We think of them as animals on the boundary. They're animals which we love and care for us and so on, but can turn vicious at a moment's notice. So they're these very ambivalent creatures, and I think there's sort of a long tradition of trying to, uh, if you like, use them as symbols on those sorts of boundary areas, those sorts of areas of uh, crisis. So certainly in the time of, uh, or really right through Britain up until very recently, you also had problems where uh, feral dogs were just everywhere through towns. You know, Bungie's actually hired a guy whose full-time job was to keep dogs out of the church. The towns are filled with these mangy, sort of semi-tame, semi-wild dogs that could be quite dangerous at the same token, you know, would eat the carrion and all that. They'd bark, they'd scare off intruders and that sort of thing as well. So they're a very ambivalent creature. Uh, but again, you, you find them throughout Britain. Uh, you find them going back in traditions really as far back as uh, that sort of thing's recorded. Interesting. Would it be cheaper yeah. instead of hiring somebody to build doors? <laughs> well, strange. it's a bit like, um, you know what uh, you know, your dog's like when it wants to sneak in and steal some food or something and it can be very quick. Oh, I sure do. Since you're having lots of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. One of the traditions, of course, of burying people very deep in cemeteries was that your feral dog could just go and dig them up again and um, have a free lunch. It makes me wonder what they're using for communion wafers anyway. Oh, <laughs> well, there's one little story I found at the time, and I didn't write it in the book, but I just loved it. It was uh, they made a prohibition in the Church of Bungie, um in about 1530 to stop people keeping small dogs in their bodice when they're in church. So, you know, women popping in in their, uh, uh, yeah, between their boobs, so to speak, in church, and they had to make a, there was enough of a problem where they had to make a law about it. Very nice. So, yeah. in, in the book you talk, there's a word you use over and over again, uh, psychopomps. Now, I, yes. can you explain to our listeners what psychopomps are? If I'm being, uh, if I'm being sort of colloquial with it, Psychopomps like the idea of someone who guides you through the afterworld or the spirit world. And so it sort of taps into that notion of, um, well, one of the other aspects of dogs, of course, is their role as a guide. That's neat. I, I never really thought of a dog as a psychopomp, but I know in, um, in, in, in horror fiction, I know in, um, especially like in Lovecraft, uh, the Dunwich horror has, uh, birds as psychopomps, uh, and is kind yeah. of a key part of that story. But that's. Yeah, I, I thought it very interesting itself. And of course, you have, correlations to Greek myth and the like as well with uh, Cerberus and that sort of thing. Um, for that matter, you have one of the forms of the Morrigan, the old Celtic death goddess, was, of course, as well as things like a crow, um, a huge black dog. So, of course, you've got to be careful making these associations because people are very, um, particularly in British folklore, people are very quick to assume a continuous line. When what you also have is, say, people writing in the 16th century who read Greek and Roman literature and integrate that into their practice. So, like I've often seen, um, I think as I indicate in the book at the start, 
people often go, oh yeah, Egyptian myth, Celtic myth, and then they go through the Bungie and then they go through the present. And the problem you have with that, of course, is if I'm talking to a 16th century uh, Puritan in um, Bungie, he's not even going to know what a Celt is, let alone uh, Anubis or something like that. It, it, people are very quick to make universal associations, and in part I see that as the, leg- the legacy of uh, Jungian approaches to folklore. And I see where people assume universal correlations to symbols because of superficial resemblance. And one of the things I tried to do in this book was, instead of just talking globally about black dogs, let's pick a case study of a town where it can get access to specific data about specific people and look at it in its own local context. See, speaking of Jung, I was going to ask you if you were, uh, if you yourself ascribe to, subscribe to Jungian ideas, because you do talk a lot about, uh, the sort of cultural, uh, payload that comes with language and bits of language as well as folkloric mm. stories. So, um, I think when I heard about Jung for the first time, I've never read his work, but I always thought it was, almost sort of a supernatural theory, but using it in the context of having connotations yeah. coming through and then as a, uh, having a collective uh, memory that's actually built into the stories and social structures sounded a lot more uh, uh, plausible. I may need to go do some reading, but I would like your thoughts on that. Yeah, now the thing with Jung, um, Jung, as he writes, and Jung's a very divided character. There's parts of him where he puts himself across in a more, uh, for want of a term, using the rhetoric of science. Uh, and there's other terms in which he's quite um, into spiritualism and so on, which, of course, was fairly standard for his era. Those sorts of divisions weren't quite as strident as they are today, particularly in psychology. Um, I find you useful, but I'm not a Jungian, if that makes sense. Um, for instance, I find the idea of the collective unconscious very dubious. I don't see any weight behind it, but looking at it in terms of symbols that are embedded in our language and our culture as we communicate them in a society... I find a much more productive way to look at it. In terms of uh, things like, for example, um, relating to my current project, the myth of big cats running around the bush in Australia at the moment, uh, we tend to look for signs when we identify something. And because we look for those little signs or images, we are very quick to make those associations based on cultural terms. I'll give you a little example of this. Um, uh, A few months ago, I was driving along um, from Geelong through to Ocean Grove, and there's a area we go through a fair bit of bush. I saw through the bush there what I thought for a second was a bear. You know, you're driving along, you look to the side and you see what things are there. And I started thinking, what the hell is that? And then, you know, I was able to you know, pull over and get a closer look. And what it actually was, was a wild pig with a hairy back. Now, the thing is, coming out of my particular culture, reading things from like Winnie the Pooh from when I'm little, the kind of discussions I have coming from that European background, that sign of the hairy back, when I just see a flash of it for a second, I click, what's the first association? Culturally, for me, goes bear. Even though it's completely implausible, the idea of seeing a bear out there in the outlays. So I think bear, and if I'd only had, let's imagine, um, let's imagine the thing that immediately scurried off into the scrub, I would have gone away thinking I'm a bear, my imagination would have filled in the gaps, so I'd be sitting there thinking, God, I thought I saw a bear. Fortunately, the thing stayed there, I could get a good look and go, no, it's a pig. And that's because I'm, you have those little, symbol, bits of things that you see, you encounter, and you tend to leap to those kinds of interpretations of your experiences. And in the British case, uh, the black dog myth is so entrenched that it is one of the first things people often jump to. There's lots of little stories, for instance, of people talking about thinking they saw a black dog uh, alongside the road when they're driving in the shadows um, late at night, and that's like a warning to them to pull over and uh, stop or we're going to have a car accident or something. And you can see, of course, that it's a metaphor for something else, but it is a fairly um, 
deeply rooted in people's language and communication. It's, it's a deeply rooted response people look for in that culture. In fact, I was just thinking of, uh, uh, Ben, uh, you, wrote a, you wrote a book a while back called Scientific Paranormal Investigation, is that right? Yes, I did, yeah. Yeah, there was a bit in there, I remember you were talking about like a uh, people who thought there was like a haunted house and they were getting like cold drafts from a spot over the stairs and things like that, if I remember correctly. Yeah, exactly. I need to have a cultural basis of things I associate with the idea of a ghost, like cold, like certain sounds, certain activities, to even make that association in the first place. And those things are very deeply rooted in our culture, they're rooted in our pop culture, they're rooted in our communication, so that when I feel things like cold, I associate it psychologically with um, things like the idea of ghost or undeath, whatever the heck happens to be culturally. And some things you can argue are fairly broad. I think Jung makes a good case for... Um, Mother Goddess is popping up quite commonly because it's association that most humans have. That being said, uh, so it's in this sense that I find Jung useful. There's these signs and signifiers and symbols that we jump to and give meaning to, but I don't think there's anything universal like a collective unconscious. Rather, it's something to me that's built in our communication, it's built in our language, it's built in our artwork, but the experience and we're immersed in from very little. I was going to say, I think it's, I think you're exactly right, and it's, it's interesting that you sort of, you know, you you cross, sort of cross pollinate the topic with ghosts because, in many ways, you know, people seeing, uh, of course, in this case, of course, you've got you've got the the blending of of monsters and ghosts and animals, sort of this sort of crypto ghosto zoology type thing, and you know, and you're exactly right, you know, in terms of you know the 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 cultural areas in which you know the the, the cultural sources that people you know, bring to their, their expectations and experiences. Completely consistent with, sorry, with Wiseman, uh, who, Richard Wiseman who was on recently, uh, his book Paranormality outlays that same sort of idea that, uh, that it's the cultural luggage you bring with you when you go into the haunted house that's probably more responsible for what you experience. Yeah, and the Ghost Association I made was quite deliberate too because the Black Dog is, at least the Black Dog of Bungie's case, but everywhere else I looked in Britain, and uh, Theodora Brown, who I talk a fair bit about in the book, I went to see her archives at the University of Exeter, and she's got just boxes and boxes of old folk stories of ghosts and goblins and all that sort of thing, stretching back to the 19th century. It's, it's a wonderful archive to go through. And One of the things with black dogs is that people never talk about them as a flesh-and-blood dog, like a, you know, uh, you know the way people talk about Nessie and expecting to find an actual dinosaur. I never found until very, very recently anyone who for a moment described an encounter with a black dog as a physical animal. There's always things like I'd feel cold in the back of my neck. I'd hear uh, weird sounds, things like that. I'd hear this padding behind me, but I wouldn't see anything. Then everything goes silent, and then I'd see the animal materialize in front of me. Or I'd be riding along, and there'd be a dog in front of me, and a car would drive straight through it, and the dog would just be there. Like They always talk about it as a spectral creature. Which is interesting because I've come across some people in other scenes who've gone around Bungie trying to put up cameras and things to take photos of the black dog. And the thing that sort of amuses me was I'd never seen anyone ever describe it as a flesh and blood animal. It was always a ghost that brought portents or warning or in some other stories guided people. There's some really interesting yarns I've had talking to people who grew up in the Depression and World War II where they talk about, say, a young woman out on her own has some guys who are in a bit of a, let's say, aggressively sexual mood. She's going home, she feels really scared, and then she'll see the black dog, she'll be scared, and then she realizes the black dog guiding her and protecting her home. There's a lot of those sort of stories. And it's a, it's a thing where it's almost always conveyed as a supernatural experience, and it's always conveyed about you. It, the dog's there to tell me something, it's warning me about my wife's impending death, or it's 
helping me get away from these, uh, you know, U.S. soldiers on the army base, or it's helping me to find my way home, or it's scaring me, or it's warning me about that there's going to be a car coming around the corner. There's always those stories. And this is where I think kind of put this metaphor for other things. It's a way of aesthetically grappling with profound moments and experiences. Even the original case from 1577, in part it took on because of the chaos of what was happening in the Reformation. You've had people, um, you know, tearing down and building up all the Catholic and Protestant things. You had people being burnt for heresy in the nearby towns. Things had reached a fever pitch. Uh, the conflict going on between Protestant and Catholics was really quite brutal and violent. In the middle of this, you have this huge storm. I think it's, uh, how to say, fairly appropriate. People put on a huge mythic quality. And in my experience looking at folklore in Britain, ghost stories tend to be very much a way of grappling with profound experiences in your history. You tell a ghost story about um, a place like Bungie, in telling that ghost story, you remember that part of your past in a really profound emotional way. And it's quite a different function to empirical history. It's a way of investing your past with powerful emotional meaning. Um, and, and it's interesting too, because I found like Australian ghost stories are often quite different to British ones. In Britain, you almost always get it's, uh, you know, Queen Isabella who was sent to Castle Rising to you know, live in exile while her son took over the throne after she had her husband murdered. They'll have this story, it'll give them this emotional meaning, and it gives a certain profundity to people in the community. And then, of course, later on it gets uh, milked to death by for tourism, which is, of course, the other side of these stories, because, you know, Britain makes a great deal of finance out of uh, manufacturing its ghost stories. As, as Scotland does with Nessie. Yeah, Exactly. Um, you know, you go to York and it's like, oh, we guarantee to have the most haunted pub in England. And you're sort of thinking, you know, should the ghost get a cut of that? Or <laughs> <laughs> um, but in Australia, they'll typically go, you know, this pub's haunted. If you buy, I don't know, some guy. There's no specific history the way I tended to find in Britain where they have a very established function. Part of that is the nature of folklore as a discipline itself, which emerged as a way of maintaining connection with the past and the social disruption of the Industrial Revolution. On the other hand, uh, often they have little stories, like a woman who slept with a landlord, got pregnant, she drowned herself in the dam out front of the house, and they'll have stories about a ghost at this house. But it's a way of keeping a little tragedy alive through constant repetition in a very emotionally poignant way. You know, it's storytelling. And, and I was always finding people who would tell me a story like this, and I'd be... I'd start with, oh, people around here are very silly and superstitious, don't believe what they say, they're all very silly. And then they'd, after a bit, you know, a cup of tea or something, start telling you a ghost story about something, and then go, oh, but, you know, people here are very superstitious. And it's like, well, you just told me a story about you having an encounter with a ghost, but not to believe you. It's a really interesting sort of duality there, and I, in the book I wrote, it was, all, to my mind, it was a lot to do with this, you grow up with a Western scientific education, but you're part of a culture that has these really emotionally pervasive stories that are very deeply rooted in your culture. And so there's this sort of ambivalence between a, a supernaturalist side and a uh, rational side. And they, and they kind of coexist in a sort of awkward, uh, uh, I don't know, cognitive dissonance I use, even that's a bit of an overused term. And now you've mentioned that people have been searching for actual physical dogs 
Have any of these cryptozoologists had any luck with tracking down physical evidence of demon hounds? No, not that I've ever come across. Uh, I should be specific. Di Francis, who was looking at British myths of big cats, similar to the Australian story, made the claim that what people were seeing as big cats were big dogs. And I, I personally don't buy it at all because people never talked about big dogs the way they talked about big cats. Whenever people talked about big cats in Britain and Australia, it's like, Something's been eating my sheep. I went over and had a look, and oh my God, it was a big cat. Like, they're talking about it like it's a flesh and blood animal that eats sheep, does that sort of thing. Black dog stories were always, uh, walking down the, walking down the road late at night, I see this black dog, and I'm absolutely terrified. It comes, walks through me, and I feel this huge thing of cold, and I go home and find my wife's got cancer, that sort of thing. It's telling you something, it's about you. And it's never flesh and blood. Um, I think it's sort of a bit of a tendency coming out of the whole, uh, well, Bigfoot being quite central to the whole cryptozoology scene in the 50s and 60s. I think it led to a certain approach where almost anything gets this run out, we'll stick out cameras and get photos of it and show it's a flesh and blood animal. But if you're not looking at the broader cultural and historical perspective, I think you can miss a lot of the role the animal plays in the culture. Um, like uh, one thing I'm arguing in this current book I'm writing on Australian big cat myths, there's, uh, how I put it, um, let's imagine you did have a small colony of pumas in Australia coming out of the 19th century or whatever. The cats are just big cat things like any other animal. However, all the social baggage, the stuff from the 60s where people make UFO associations and all that sort of stuff, is another story. And to my mind, that's actually the more interesting story. The way people grapple with an idea, the way they turn it into storytelling, the kind of meaning they put on it. Because uh, if you actually think about it, it's quite an odd idea for people to get so upset about, given Australia's history of introduced animals, a fairly prosaic thing. Is there another introduced animal living out the bush that's descended from circus escapees or whatever? And, and to my mind, that's a really... That's sort of the more interesting story. And when I was doing The Black Dog of Bungie, I was trying to skirt the issue of getting caught up on is it true or not and instead look at what's the story that it tells you about the town and the community. I run the line, for instance, in that book that the story of The Black Dog is basically the story of the town. I was going to ask you about that because um, that's one of the sort of recurring themes that we get here. Uh, when we looked at, uh, for example, Jay Smith's book on on the Beasts of Givadon, uh, he shows how the, there's a very very unique uh, social and cultural context uh, for the beast, in which you know the, the sightings were happening and, and the different interpretations uh, that basically spawned and created these stories. So, what was the socio cultural context for for the Beast of, of Bungie? For the Black Dog of Bungie, the main social and cultural context was the chaos of the English Civil War and the English Reformation. You know, a complete loss of certainty. You'd been going along for 500 or so years in the region being, yet we're Catholic, we have a certain relationship to the church, a certain relationship to the king, a certain relationship to our local lords. This is what we do in our religious life every day. We can rock up to our police, uh, priest to deal with our supernatural life. Everything's all fairly certain. There's common patterns. Then all of a sudden things like the English Reformation get swept away. Oh, we're not meant to do these rituals in the Catholic Church. Oh, okay. Um, we are meant to do them. You know, their religious life became suddenly unstuck. You started to get really violent and brutal conflicts for the region. In the English Civil War, central government breaks down, and of course, because central government breaks down, you get all these moral panics during the English Civil War that lead to the witch trials of Britain, in which again, large numbers of people being arrested on very flimsy evidence, lots of social conflict. People are living in a state of conflict. 
And in living in that state of conflict, they then have to wrestle with this lack of certainty. And the black dog, I felt, was interpreted, not interpreted, but it was a construction out of that chaos. Um, if you, if you figure, if you like, if you'd suddenly gone from an ordered society to things falling apart like in Somalia, the, the level of chaos and uh, just panic could be overwhelming. I mean, things like, you know, people are being burnt alive in neighbouring towns. People are being hung for witchcraft in neighbouring towns. Uh, it's in that context that I think it really needs to be understood. And then it sort of dies down, but it becomes just a symbol of warning. Um, this there's bits and pieces of things in the 18th century of using the black dog as a warning so that smugglers are going to be operating in the district, things like that. Um, but then in the 19th century, it gets taken up as a symbol of connection to the past, once again in a time of social turmoil. The local industries are collapsing, people are being pulled off the land, sent into the city. It becomes, again, a time of turmoil, the black dog story returns. But in this case, in quite a different function, it returns as a way of connecting you to the past. And that legacy to the past sort of helps you preserve your cultural identity. That's an overwhelming context to see in the Black Dog case. It's it's a, uh, or at least I think it was really interesting uh, the way the history unfolded. So when you when you started looking into it, uh, I mean I don't want to spoil the book for your for the readers because I'm assuming a lot of our listeners will want to actually go get this book because it, it is really a great read. And you also did a really good job. Just throw this out that you did a really good job of taking it back to the source and then coming back forward in history, you know, going back, mm. you know what I mean? Getting, <laughs> going back to the original sources to see what's the basis of the story. Right. So, but after the initial pamphlet came out describing the event, that that wasn't the last we heard of the black dog. This wasn't a singular event. So what else happened? I mean, in, in, in history, how has this black dog recurred and manifested itself in Bungay folklore? We had the original event. We had the story, of course, written by Abraham Fleming in London shortly thereafter. Um, the story then, it gets, it comes up again during the English witch trials in a peripheral way. You get people in that region talk about seeing the devil in the form of a hound appear to them through the region and passing roads, things like that. In the 19th century, it starts re-emerging, and it starts re-emerging with a thing where people are going out to rural Britain trying to reconstruct that link to the past. So they go around collecting these stories, and once again, the stories emerge of spectral hounds that bring warning of impending doom, spectral hounds that uh, bring messages from the devil or from God. In the 19th century, it starts to be re- sorry, the late, early 20th century, it starts to be reconstructed as something that can be both a warning but also something positive. You get stories of girls who say, like one particular girl, I found letters she was writing to Theodora Brown in about 19, in the 1920s, I think it was. Actually, 1930, sorry. And she's walking along and talking about how she'd have the black dog walking along beside her and she'd talk to us and things like that. So it starts to emerge again in the early 20th century as Partly a way of coming to terms with the past, partly a way of coming to terms with profound events, but it establishes a, a pattern. But that pattern changes over time from its initial symbol of you know, utter horror and devastation to becoming something a lot more prosaic and ambivalent, uh, depending on your point of view. People start developing a certain affection for the black dog as a symbol of their town through economic and social crisis. A key point in my story, and especially something I'm very proud of doing in this particular story, was all the material from the 1930s and 40s, which, because it's not linked to that classic skeptic believer debate, is largely ignored. But if I hadn't have recorded those stories in this book and in my notes in my office, um, they would have been lost forever. The stories of 
how that came about, the rebuilding of the castle to reconstruct the town as a symbol of English historic identity as opposed to failed industry. That was quite a deliberate project um, by Dr. Kane, who took over as town reeve at the time. You had a town that had economically collapsed during the Depression and the collapse of local industries in the late 19th century, and he deliberately set about making a historic town and um, republicizing the black dog myth in every newspaper he could get a hand, a hand on to uh, reinvigorate that story and entrench it. it became, it's still part of school curriculum in Bungie. It's, and they, and uh, they came to look at the dog in a different vein? Very much so. <laughs> they say the town weather vein with a black dog in it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that, and uh, you're finding out who actually designed the weather vane. And yeah, this is something I love with historic research. You go in and you see a town weather vane, you think, okay, so where the hell did that come from? We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. People got really upset. You go through the papers, they took it down to get repaired, and everyone was all jumping up and down and being really upset. So it was a great little story from a guy who used to be uh, Anglican vicar in Bungie where um, the people got really enthused about it uh, around about the year 2000, and uh, they were going to build for the year 2000 a giant statue of the Black Dog of Bungie in the church out of bronze, and this minister there was saying, you know, guy, how does it put it to me? He said, look, Think about it, guys. You want a giant statue of the devil in such a likeness in bronze in your church behind the altar? <laughs> just, just think about it for a moment as you know, practicing Christians. Do you want to have the statue of the devil in your church at the altar? <laughs> Why not? Mix it up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mix it up a little. I just think it was a really funny image. But, of course, the thing is, in uh, one of the ways I got into this story, of course, was uh, my father was minister of Emmanuel Church in Bungie uh, for quite a while. And you have this, in Bungie, the thing my dad was always talking about was it's very difficult to do anything you can't show a historical link to what you're doing, whether it be where you're holding, um, where you're holding a market for the, uh, you know, summer festival, things like that. Everything has to get shown, has to get given a historic link. And that's in a sense the way the black dog got configured from a portent of doom to a symbol of the town. In, Becoming a symbol of the town, it started to be viewed very positively. People started differentiating the black dog of Bungie from the broader myth of black sharks from Norfolk. 
and they started going basically our dog's a good dog, the other dog's a bad dog. There's a lot of really interesting little... That's a reinterpretation, right? <laughs> it is a reinterpretation. Another one, I think this was, a really, this was a really interesting one for me, it took a bit to find it, was where the myth that the black dog of Bungie was the disembodied soul of Lord Bygod who built Bungie Castle. And I was trying to trace this back, and in the end, the furthest I could trace this back was to a book called Haunted Britain, written in 1973 by a guy called Anthony Cox, I think his name was. And what he'd done, I had to, this is, uh, got this from Dartmoor, was he integrated the Dartmoor story of the black dog into Richard Cabell, that's the basis of the Hound of the Baskerville story, and he applied that across to Bungie. He hadn't actually gone to Bungie, but he just applied the story across, looked at their local notorious uh, lord, attached the black dog myth to it, and then that took off. And this is something I find really interesting with the spread of folklore. The idea of the dog being Lord Bygod, even though it's recent, catches on, it fits in the way people looked at the dog. Whereas uh, around by people, uh, Janet and Colin Board's argument that, you know, it's linked to UFOs and things like that, and they thought it was hilarious. <laughs> now, the thing is, they're both equally irrational, if you like, but one fits in the established narrative of how you think about the dog in the town, the other doesn't. But of course, the other story linking it to UFOs and things fits really well in the New Age thing. So they've taken it up there in a way that's quite different to how it's seen in the town itself. As you've noted, uh, black dog sightings remain common in the region. So what's unique about this particular legend and why did you focus on this one? Um, well, the key thing when you're doing anthropology is people need to be willing to talk to you and willing to talk to you openly because a common thing you'll find is you go into a community and talk and they'll feel you're full of bollocks because <laughs> they're having fun with you as you know, a visiting academic and the like. Uh, people in rural Britain are legendary for just clamming up and not telling anyone anything. And with my father being minister, visiting the area quite frequently and so on, people knew me, people willing to talk to me, people willing to network with me. Of course, the book was co-written with Chris Reeves, his creator of Town Museum. He, uh, he was very happy to work with me on it. Um, and because of that, I was able to get this unique avenue into this story, which I don't know if anyone else would have been able to. And this is a very important factor. I mean, at first, too, when I got into the story, I'd finished doing um, Sign of the Witch. I was looking around for something else to do, and Dad had recently, at that stage, been made minister there in Emmanuel Church, and uh, I heard the story from Australia, and I went, oh, how cool is that? I've got to go and look at that. And so went over, started to meet people, started to talk to people, started doing the, um, you know, the first starting point of any of these uh, sort of projects for me is to do a literature search. And I start going through all the newspapers and things back, and then in doing that, you get a sense of the town. Because one thing people often do in these sort of projects that well, bugs me a lot is they cherry-pick for articles. They're looking for black dogs. They only look for black dog articles. You don't look at the broader context of what's happening in the town, which is a lot more work. But, but you get little stories about how people were living at the time. There was, there was a great 1700s uh, story where they had this woman who was um, selling off all her property. She wanted it donated to the church. She didn't want her daughter to get a bit of it. And, it's fascinating because it sort of gave me a list of everything someone had had in their house at that era that was on the auction list. But she had this great quote, which was, um, she was talking about her daughter not being able to receive any of her money because, and the quote went something like, she's the kind of lady whose anklets are in danger of becoming entangled with her earrings. And I went, gosh, that joke's like 400 years old, you know, 300 <laughs> years old. <laughs> Cleopatra, they said that about her. Yeah, that's what the woman said about her daughter at this, uh, uh, this auction. 
And, and I was sitting there thinking, you know, that tells you so much about what life in the town was like. And if you don't understand what life in that community is like, you can't understand the myth that comes from it. So you have to read broadly around the subject to get a sense of what's really driving people. So that's, that's a key part. And again, people being willing to talk to me was fantastic because then I could sort of network with people, people could pass me on to things. There were lots of things like uh, Dr. Kane, for instance, and uh, Hugh Morgan, who were both very prominent in the town when the town was being reconfigured as a historic town, both kept uh, books of news clippings. You know, that was a fantastic resource. Um, coming across the Browns archives in Exeter, I mean, I could go through in-depth and get a real sense of what's happening, and then I could cross-reference letters, I could talk to people about letters they'd written 40 years ago and get a sense of what they were intending when they sent it. And you know, that, if you like, that's the grunt work of folklore, which a lot of people don't do when they do these sorts of, um, of what of a better term, you know, folkloric, supernatural, um, cryptozoological projects. It's that really broad contextual work that lets you make sense of the story. And I think uh, all of us here probably experienced before the locals clamming up. And I used to live uh, in Armadale, halfway between Sydney and Brisbane. And I was researching the Gyra ghost story a number of years ago and experienced the locals closing in on themselves and not wanting to uh, tell me where the house was located. And so luckily I had an inn who was able to point out the house to me and uh, to connect me to some people who'd be willing to talk with me. So what is a good way for investigators like us, um, historians, to, uh, to circumvent the locals closing up? Um, well, the first thing was I had the fortune that people already partly knew me and it's getting to know people on their own terms. I think that's very important to doing that kind of research. Um, the second thing is, of course, do all your preparation. Do your literature search first so you know the people, you know the context, you know the issues, you know other things besides your topic. Um, so in doing that broader research, you can get a broader context of what's going on so you can talk about other related issues. Uh, for example... Just recently, I was talking to people about the Gippsland Panther myth in the 1930s. A key way to get into that was working out the issues at the time, which were coming from an enormous flood that happened that year, uh, the particular year I'm looking at, and also the logging industry at the time. But you need to know broader contextual material, not just go and read all the stuff about... Um, you know, if I was going into internet, I wouldn't just go and read messy articles, but read you know, what's going on in the 1920s in general in that town. What are the issues they're facing? So you can talk broadly and get a sense of the feel of the town and the people. Um, when you're talking to people, really important, of course, basic anthropological practice, you don't judge people. You talk to them, you let them tell their story, and you're letting them tell their story. And talking to them generally about it to get a sense of what they're wanting. It's not for us to, when you're interviewing someone to try and put judgment on them. It's rather a thing of trying to get a sense of who they are and how they're engaging with the story that they're trying to tell you. And it's a very common thing I've noted some people will do is they'll sort of get very quick to push them to certain types of conclusions or else to uh, try and judge them. And what you need to do instead is let them tell their story their way. Because people will sometimes, to make you happy, tell you what you want to hear. People will often just tell you bollocks to get a laugh out of you. People will have fun having a joke with you. And, you know, you'll have to actually get through that and be able to chat to people as individuals to really get a sense of what the stories mean. It's only when you know what the stories mean in the context of their community that you can really understand uh, the broader context of their local myths, whether it be a ghost story or a black dog or Nessie or a big cat. 
Now, the overwhelming issue with the big cat story at the moment is the issue of stock losses and people in the 19th and early 20th century seeing Australia as this kind of really alien Gothic landscape. So you have the situation of mass stock losses, you have this kind of border where on one land this unknown bush, on the other land this nice controlled zone. During the night, things come out, eat your sheep, disappear. And when it starts reaching an epidemic level, largely through things like mass land clearance where the dingoes and the like have got nowhere else to go, it reaches a fever pitch. In the 19th century, the people tended to respond to this by running around in large numbers with uh, firearms, shooting the billy out of it. And those panics then get entrenched in memory and then the story starts to take a weight of its own. So to get in, you need to, need to read broadly through the media, go do a media search, you know, read the newspapers. And when I say that, don't just look for your messy articles, you look for what's happening in the town and the, in the economy, what sort of things are front page news that people are obviously concerned about. Get that sense, and once you've got that sense, you talk to people, and you just chat to people as a human being. You, know, you don't see them as a vehicle or something to give me my data. You chat to them to let them tell their stories their way. And then you start to correlate it with events. You start to correlate it with what other people tell you, and then you can start seeing patterns emerging. I think you're right. I'm really glad that you brought up the the whole issue of uh, doing a literature literature search. Um, I think all of us here, and as, as well as uh, my uh, our friend Dan Loxton of Skeptic Magazine and others who who do this sort of research investigation, one of the one of the main failures that people uh, that, that we find is that you know when someone wants to do investigations, whether it's ghosts or monsters, or whatever else, they fail to do a basic literature search. They 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 just think oh let me just jump into it and of course um, that's you know that, that's that's the, the exact wrong way to do that you need to you need to you know spend some time and do some effort and put in some shoe leather uh, in doing that so I'm I'm really glad you brought that up yeah and it's interesting because uh, it's relating to discussions of course with having um, partly with you guys and partly with uh, my cousin Duncan on Facebook things like one thing that really bugged me the Australian um, 1020C I think the group was and it's sort of a side bit of the Australian Skeptic Society and they were writing about the big cat myth when it came up in the papers again as it does every few years and the guy was saying you know if this if you had big cats out there you'd have stock losses and it's like he hasn't done the most cursory reading of the literature which is the primary driving engine going on that causes panics about big cats is stock losses that they can't easily attribute to dogs or have just in some way weirded the farmer out it's precisely stock losses that's been driving the issue. Now, that comes about because he hasn't read the literature, he hasn't gone and gone and done a media search of newspaper articles about the topic. Mm-hmm. And look, in my view with Australia, most of our newspapers are now digitally available where you can scan them by PDF and do a word search um, in the National Library of Victoria. There's no excuse for that. You can jump online, type in Tiger, look at the period you want and have bazillions of articles and then move on from there. It's a very straightforward thing to do with that digital archive. It's not that difficult, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think, the, I think the, the difference is that people like you and, and ourselves recognize that, that that is a step that needs to be done. It's not an afterthought. Mm. It's part of the process. And I think that that's, yeah. that's where most people fail. It, they don't even, it doesn't even occur to them that that's, <laughs> that's the first step you do when you're researching this. But. Yeah, and I mean, I've, Notice in passing, like, because I have a line where I sort of talk about um, the skeptics and the pseudo skeptics. The pseudo skeptics feel like I'm going to culturally fit in with my scene in terms of social desirability by bagging stuff out. A proper skeptic approaches it, you break it down to specific claims, you evaluate specific claims in their context, 
and you scientifically go about it. Whereas a pseudo-skeptic right. is someone who, you know, acts like Dana Scully on the X-Files. You know, a giant spaceship lands behind her and aliens come out and she's like, oh no, it's swamp gas. <laughs> to my mind, the first step, and part of it is you have people from a scientific background doing it and because they're looking at it from a scientific perspective and they don't have training in the social sciences, they don't think to do the sort of things that a, a social scientist will do as their first step. Mm. You know, talking to people, uh, a literature search. Literature, literature search has to be your first step in doing any project because if you don't understand the context, you don't know what people are meaning. I read a fantastic study of Bigfoot recently. Um, it's become a bit of a model for my current project. So a guy called uh, Joshua Booth. Um, yes. It was called Bigfoot, The Making of a Legend. And it's like, I was sitting there thinking, this is fantastic, you know, where he's talking about 19th century folk songs of old Bigfoot and linking that to white Indian relations and things like that. When you understand that context, you can then make sense, and you understand, say, the context of Edmund Hillary and the Yeti business going on in the 50s, you can then make sense of the rise of the myth of Bigfoot. Well, let me say when when I was when I was reading uh, when I was reading your stuff, it was interesting. It, what it brought back for me was uh, was that last year um, at the American Folklore Society's conference, I, I presented on uh, the chupacabra and the folklore of chupacabra, and I was on a panelist. Uh, I was on a panel with other people who were talking about various fantastic creatures and demonic entities, and it was interesting oh. because one of the other people there uh, did some fascinating work on stories of phantom sheep and church pigs. In Danish okay. uh, folk tales, um, interesting. Yeah. It, it was really interesting, and it sort of reminded me of some of the black dogs and, and, and cat stories. And it mm. seemed in, in those cases with the phantom sheep and pigs, uh, of course, again, were is it sort of interesting in that these are obviously not not canines, but they they mm. seem to be inter- interpreted as, as either protective spirits. Uh, or portents of doom, and you sort of touched on that earlier yeah. in terms of you know there's, there's this sort of weird paradox where sometimes if you see one, it means you or someone else is going to die. Other times, when you see one, it means everything is okay. So, mm. what, what do you think about that? Well, with the dog case, the argument I make in the book is it relates to the role, the social role we have with dogs. Um, and I start the story with a poor incident where my um, cat got killed by a big black dog in the front, uh, sorry, my next door neighbor's front yard. Uh, yeah, there's this thing where, you know, the next, the day, the dog at the time just seemed like a monster, whereas, um, I was trying to get the cat off it and failed, and the dog started going me, and I'm sitting there in my gym jams with a bucket of water. <laughs> this dog pitbull thing up. It's a good story. Um, it's a good story. It, it's, it's a good, yeah, and I thought it was just very, it's sad for our cat, but it was sort of also appropriate that I had this while I was writing this book. Because the next day, the, the dog was in the next door neighbor's yard, and it was a perfectly normal dog. It was just brownie color. It didn't seem anything like a ginormous. When I was describing it to the council, it was like, you know, some sort of dinosaur or something. <laughs> the next day, it's a perfectly normal dog. I would have been happy to pass it and all the rest of it. And that's the thing with dogs. You know, how many people die each year because they have the family house pet that they love and love them, uh, kills their child or something? It's the nature of dogs as an ambivalent creature, and that ambivalence gets projected onto their uh, supernatural manifestations in culture. Mm-hmm. That ambivalent role where they're both a, a threat and a protector. With the farm animals, I don't know enough about the literature of that context to really make an informed opinion to the extent I'd like to. I would also suggest though that the, these places of boundaries often have that dualistic aspect of going either way, positive or negative. Uh, you even look at religious belief, you know, angels will be there wonderful and nice or the next minute they can be horrible beings of destruction. And, and I think those folkloric stories of creatures and the boundaries will usually have that kind of 
two-sided aspect to them. And, of course, a lot of this is concealed with the 19th century where angels get all made into nice cherubs and fairies become happy little things that wave wands. But in the broader historic sense, they're typically very ambivalent creatures. Uh, hmm. Creatures that can be malevolent and horrific and malicious and sadistic and things that can be wonderfully kind and caring depending on their engagement with you in the particular context of the story. It's also interesting, just just real quick, uh, sort of uh, that takes me back to some of my lake monster investigations where you have lake monsters such as Champ and Lake Champlain and Ogopogo and Lake Okanagan that on one hand are viewed as these you know, scary monsters. I mean, these are large creatures that could easily kill anybody. And in some cases, uh, like in Ogopogo has, have been claimed to. And on the other hand, you, they're this warm, cuddly, furry, cute mascot that's very lovable. And so you have you know, the, the same sort yeah. of, you know, positive and negative good and evil paradigm. I was reading a recent book on Yowie, sort of the Australian version of Bigfoot. Um, and it had a similar thing where, yeah, cute, cuddle, cuddly, lovable thing. And then people would talk about seeing it where they, Again, it's not just like a black dog and fungi story. They talked about, you know, hearing the animal move through the bush where they couldn't see it, and then they started feeling this unreasoning terror, then they'd see it, and then they managed to calm themselves and it went away. It's this really, so much like a black dog and fungi story where the, where the animal's sort of responding to you, it's all about you, and it can be fearful. At the same token, people will tell cuddly stories and have this little furry thing. A friend of mine got me a little cuddly toy yeti sitting at my uh, bedside table. <laughs> It's a, it's a funny little ambivalence, but again, it's the social role we ascribe to the creatures. It's the social role that comes out of creatures that are on the boundary that can sort of go either way. You know, for good or ill, depending on their point of view. Ghosts have the same story. Some people talk about it as like a wonderful blessing kind of story. Other people talk about it in terms of absolute unreasoning terror. Yeah, perspective. Yeah, the, the sort of frame of uh, how how the story's framed inside your head is probably kind of critical to what the experience is going to yeah. be like. I, I imagine uh, a, a frightening poltergeist experience uh, versus mm. my the comforting uh, you know ghost of a, a recently passed relative, for example. Um, yeah, you know, it's a different way to take it. But uh, I, mm. you, you, your book covered a lot of really interesting historical material. And I know, you know, personally from having just come off of something like a four or five month werewolf inquiry, I, it, it can be really addictive to kind of try to get to the bottom of these kind of questions uh, about mm. the historicity of, of the matter. So in your research, what does the actual historical record have to say about this? I mean, I actually know the answer because I read your book, but uh, <laughs> could you talk to our <laughs> listeners a little bit about uh, what, what you actually found about the original event? Because I found that very uh, fascinating. Yeah, well, the original event had that, uh, to sum up, you did have a storm, and the storm was recorded in the church registrar. Two years later, they're talking about still needing to do repairs to it. They wrote that two men were killed by a lightning strike in the uh, church steeple when they were ringing the bells, which is a common medieval practice to scare away spirits. Abraham Fleming wrote it in London. There's no indication that he even went to Bunky. It's uh, something that a story that he heard through the grapevine that he decided to use as a vehicle for his own particular religious agenda. And that's really the guts of the original story. Um, because records amongst the general populace and a largely illiterate society are so sketchy, we don't know exactly how it became entrenched in the, in the Bungie myth, but uh, nonetheless, the original story has no weight to it. I found that really, really interesting because... It always seemed odd to me, having read about it, that uh, a demon hound would come into a church. 
And that one element that I was missing, that the story itself originated at a different church, <laughs> it kind of gives it a lot more uh, plausibility as, as a, a PR move, you know. Uh, or, mm. or, or just a, 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 maybe, if not deliberate PR, uh, a, uh, a way to vocalize the frustrations between, uh, two religious, uh, co- communities, you know? So the, the Catholic story itself in Bungie is a really interesting one because after that event, they largely went underground and it's only in the 19th century that they emerged. They were largely practicing illegally, um, practicing Catholicism illegally under the, uh, Care of the Lord of uh, Flixton Manor, and that that family maintained basically secret links to the continent and the Catholic Church and performing Catholic Mass um, illegally um, up until quite you know up until quite recently where the Catholic population saved up enough money to buy the church. It's actually the newest church in Bungie, but they have an enormous attachment to it because it's like this uh, you know symbol of finally being able to come out of the closet as Catholics without fear sorry without fear of persecution. Um, and that's like a really fascinating little undercurrent because one of the key side effects of that story taking off as it did was it put an end to the Catholic-Protestant rivalry by forcing the Catholics underground. And again, the fact, like there's a little book written, um, sorry, the name of it escapes me, but uh, the, one of the Catholic priests wrote a history of the Catholic Church in Bungie from the 16th century and a lot of it's this real story of maintaining faith in the face of uh, large-scale Protestant persecution. And, you know, those stories are really interesting. One of the things about the witch trials is that the the intensity with which Britain wanted to separate itself from the continent meant that there's this kind of, there was this kind of orthodoxy that built up in the 19th century and really till the late 20th century that portrayed Britain as nice, rational and stable and sensible on the continent full of nutty supernaturalist wackos ripping people up for witchcraft. And of course, in doing so, they ignored their own traditions of doing precisely that because it suited the English national identity to construct themselves as rational people. And you see that at the end of uh, the English witch trials where you have public, I think Jane Wenham, uh, it's one of the last, about 1712, it's one of the last successful convictions of a witch in England. And Jane Wenham was brought up. And Judge Powell had come out from London. You know, the people are expecting him to jump in and support their claims that this woman is a witch. And he said you have things like... Uh, you know, they bring evidence saying all these people have seen her flying over the town in a broomstick. And Judge Powell said, uh, that's a great line, um, there's no laws in England that prohibit the practice of flight. <laughs> I just love that. Where it's just, you, you sit there turning into this joke and you just see Judge Powell going, oh my God, look at these nothings. Um, you had evidence, well, oh, you burnt your evidence because it's for the devil, so you don't actually have any evidence. You know, and then she gets a successful conviction anyway because all the locals in the jury are, you know, wanting to get this one. And you can see that kind of split where England starts to really overtly push this rationalist line as a way of separating itself from the continent and trying to insulate itself against uh, Catholic infiltration. And there's this, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic. And of course, the Black Dog of Bungie story is tied into that particular mythology. Are there uh, similar stories from different times and places around the world and could maybe tell us about some of the other famous spectral hounds? Well, okay, for for starters, of course, you have... um, the Black Hound of Dartmoor, which um, there's a collection of legends, but some of them talk about the black dog uh, running ahead of a chariot with a headless driver. Um, you've got the story of Squire Richard Cabell, which is the... The Black Dog of Bungie story is entangled in the origins of Hound of the Baskervilles by Arthur Conan Doyle. 
But the main centre for the story is that of Squire Richard Cabell, who's, if you like, the model of Henry Baskerville. Henry Baskerville, I think, is named after Arthur Conan Doyle's coachman. Squire Richard Cabell, um, he had a reputation being, as they called him at the time, a monstrously evil man, partly because he was on the wrong side in the English Civil War, partly because it does seem like he did have a nasty reputation. You know, he was accused of uh, murdering his wife. It actually turned out that his wife had escaped to London. Stories of him going out and kidnapping young women from villages that he liked the look of, having his way with them, letting them loose and hunting them down with dogs and so on. Those, those are the stories that float around about him. Anyway, the uh, story goes, you know, getting killed by one of his own dogs, which is actually a myth, but uh, nonetheless it stuck, because it fitted the narrative that was going on at the time. And it has stories like, you know, on uh, I think it's his birthday on July 5th, if I have that correct, I don't have the material in front of me. Um, the story is, you know, he roams the... Uh, you know, roams Dartmoor with a pack of black hounds hunting people. Um, you know, Australia's got a few vari- variations of black hound myths. There's a little town called Chiltern now that was for a long time called Black Dog after Black Dog Creek because it's an 1836 story where a guy encountered this supernatural black dingo that became established into town folklore. Um, there's black dog stories. Of course, there's black shuck from all over Norfolk that, again, like Bungie appears as a warning uh, Black Shuck was also, in the 19th century context, meant to be a shape-changing creature. It could appear like a person, but its natural shape was that of a huge black hound. Um, really, pretty much anywhere you go through Britain, there's all sorts of variations. In Yorkshire, of course, you have the Bargest, again, huge demonic black hound. Um, again, creatures of boundaries, creatures that are taken in the public mindset as a connection to an eternal Celtic British identity. And I say Kelsey because we usually link it back to the story of the Morrigan and that sort of thing. Of course, Black Dog coming out of a lot of these stories became used as a euphemism for depression. You know, Winston Churchill's Black Dog, the Black Dog Institute in Australia, which uh, manages depression studies and the like. So they're very endemic stories in, um, well, pretty much the world over. I've got an article, I haven't got into it properly yet, so uh, talking about a related Native American myth of Black Dogs and things. So this fairly ubiquitous around the world. Well, let me let me ask you if, uh, about that in terms of uh, the role that dogs play in broader mythologies. Uh, of course, you, you can go back yes. to Cerberus, you know, the three-headed hound uh, from Greek and Roman mythology, mm-hmm. which, uh, as I recall, guarded the gates of the underworld. And in that mm-hmm. case, you, you had the, the monster's role in, in most of the stories, as I recall, wasn't so much as important of death, but uh, a guardian. And, you know, the, you, you, di- you didn't want to encounter it, but on the other hand, beyond there was the underworld. So how can mm-hmm. you talk a bit about the, 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 the canid uh, role in, in mythologies? Again, when you talk about the canid in mythologies, basically mirrors the role that dogs have in our social engagement with it in most cultures. They're, mm-hmm. they're guardians, it's one of the first things we use our dogs for. You know, the black dog of Bungie is often associated with the castle as a guardian of it. Um, so you have that role as a guardian, you have that role as the guide, the thing that can take you through, you know, to help you tra- travel through the underworld as a guide, and of course that's mirrored in Bungie's stories. Um, mm-hmm. The dog is a carrier to feed an argument put forward um, by a few writers, Theodora Brown amongst them, who I'm hoping to write a biography of at some point in the future. Um, dogs are carrying things. You know, going back to you know the Egyptian Anubis, and of course the Morrigan is a you know goddess of death. It's, you know, the carrying things, the crow and the dogs. The it has that because of that carrying fixation, the fixation on graveyards and things in Britain, where they you know look at digging people up to eat. The dogs are. Um, 
closely associated with death, and because of that fixation on death, they become seen as something linked to the boundary between life and death. So mm-hmm. those sort of roles get repeated frequently over and over again, and I see the mythology as a reflection of our personal engagement with dogs with a vastly long history. Well, pretty much all of these mythologies that come across are reflections of our actual engagement with dogs in our society as a domesticated, or for the most part, a semi-domesticated animal. An animal that, you know, all those, uh, for instance, most, up until very recently, most towns have a whole bunch of semi-domesticated dogs that are part wild, part domestic. They'll have a nip at you, but at the same token, they live off your food, they ward off intruders and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's really how I'd see it. Um, similar thing, you know, you want to go back to Egyptian stories of, you know, Anubis and the like. Again, you have a carrion feeder associated with death on that boundary. But, but for example, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of thinking as contrasted, say, with, with cats. I mean, you have black cats associated right. with, with bad luck and witches and familiars, but you don't necessarily have that association with death, uh, as far yeah. as I know. Yeah, and I would argue that that's relating to that we have that control over dogs. Carrions... So cats are not as closely associated with carrying, but they're also more distant to humans. They're more, they play almost more of a mythic trickster kind of role. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're more of an unknown thing. In, in Australian big cat mythology, they're a lot more like this unknown predator that comes out and precisely because you can't identify it, it becomes like this trickster thing like, well, like a cat. Um, you can see that in the jokes people put up on Facebook and the like about cats. Cats are these ambivalent things, you don't know their intention. Um, they're living in your home, but they don't, they're not dependent on you the way a dog is. They don't relate directly to you the way a dog does, where it's, where a dog's quite deeply entangled with you and your social life. Uh, yeah, again, cats have a very prominent role, and look, one thing I find really fascinating with the Australian myth of big cats and the bush-eating stock and the like is the way in which it's brought back historically, almost unreasoning terror, supernatural associations, and all the rest of it for something that if it was there, it was just, it's an animal, you know. It wants to meet lady cats or boy cats. It wants to eat a sheep or a wallaby or whatever. It wants to do its thing. But the intensity of the focus, the way in which it has people flying off the handle is really quite remarkable and out of all proportion to the actual claim being made. Uh, Tim Winton, a fairly famous Australian novelist, wrote a novel called In the Winter Dark and has these four people in a little valley, you know, Mostly yuppies and things have moved out the countryside to have a big cat come through the, uh, come through a night, a few fleeting glimpses, a dead, uh, goat, a bunch of dead chickens and the like, and it sort of starts as this catalyst where in the end people are shooting each other and running around mad. It has had that kind of impact in Australia, but you think it's actually not no bigger deal than, say, dingoes attacking people and so on, which occasionally happens. It's not really a bigger deal, so why is it so intensely fixated upon and supernaturalized. And I think part of it is relating to that mythic role of cats as this ambivalent, uncontrolled, sneaky trickster figure that is, again, difficult to control. The, the, again, that thing of boundaries I'm finding all the time here is between habit, you know, controlled agricultural land and bushland where you don't really know what's there. And I think cats have that really profound impact in that respect. Uh, and I think even house cats have that. The way people talk about house cats is, you know, you don't own a house cat, a house cat owns you. Uh, you don't see that uh, thing that's been making the web rounds of your cat's trying to kill you. <laughs> Have you guys seen that at all? Yes, uh, I, I've seen that, and, yes. and sometimes I'm pretty sure my cat is trying to kill me. Mine too, <laughs> yeah. definitely. But there's a whole 
set of signs that we associate with cats and cat-like people and that sort of thing. And again, that wild, uncontrolled, but also sensual and trickster thing. I mean, hell, look at the figure of Catwoman from comic books. It's that real ambivalent role that at least we give cats in our particular culture. The What's happened to Bungie, the town, since it's sort of leashed itself to this history of the black dog? Um, you're meaning in the more recent period where it's been taken up for tourism and the like. Mm-hmm. How's, how's it faring? In Bungie today, everything is the black dog. You know, black dog antiques, black dog movie theater, black dog karate. Anything in Bungie, you can stick a black dog and it's got a black dog on it. Black Dog forms a major part of their summer festival. It's part of the school curriculum for all the uh, students in the town. Everyone has to do the Black Dog story. They draw pictures of the Black Dog. They're taken to all the Black Dog sites. Um, Chris Reeves is the uh, creator of the town museum. He dresses up as a monk and he goes and does a uh, does like a poem story of the Black Dog as part of the summer festival that everyone goes to in St Mary's Church. It was actually funny. He had a when I was there last, he had a wink at me as he walked by his monk outfit going, oh, by the way, I'm off to propagate the myth that Lord Bygod is a black dog. <laughs> and, you know, off he goes, and that's what you do in the town. Um, the town is intensely focused on the black dog. It's promoted very heavily locally. Uh, there's a band called The Darkness, a metal band from Lowestoft. They took the story, put it into one of their uh, songs off the album, uh, the album called Failure to Launch, I think it was. They run it through. Really, it's more and more part of the town. It's getting more of the sort of tourist kitsch thing going on as time's developing, but that being said, the undercurrent of folklore is still there. I met quite a few people yeah, who tell stories about, you know, like going off and closing the gates of their farm and then seeing the black dog there watching them and things like that. You know, those stories are still very common. They're still part of the broader folklore. Is it well received? Is it working financially? But like I think of Roswell, New Mexico, like because they they they've got like there's the UFO culture and it's all over the place. But then everybody else is like, oh, I wish they weren't doing all this UFO stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I found most of it mostly everyone loved it. Like I didn't meet I met very few people. There was the minister who was who actually wrote a novel about the black dog. So again, that ambivalence. He wrote a novel about it called The Kettle Chronicles, where he wrote it like a Father Cadvale style murder mystery where a guy was using a black dog to kill people in relation to, uh, I think, uh, people's inheritance and all that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, this particular minister, uh, when I was talking to him about it, he said, sort of got exasperated at one point, he said, look, he said, it's the only bloody thing that's ever happened in that bloody little town, and no wonder they go on about it. <laughs> that's what he said to me. <laughs> and so that sort of, there's a bit of that cynicism, but by and large, people seem to be very anxious to celebrate it, and... Again, they've used the education system there to enculturate into the whole population. You know, kids will do the black dog in school, they'll draw pictures of it, kids start getting nightmares about the black dog, and that becomes part of the culture. And, yeah, and by and large, it's celebrated. People seem to really love it. They're very affectionate. Whenever anyone does anything to some of the black dog symbols around the town, there's a huge base of letters in the newspapers and things saying how terrible it is that you took down the weather vane or that you moved this sign or whatever it was. Because they see it as part of their town heritage and their town identity. Well, so, David, I was going to ask you our final question. What's your favourite monster? Well, what's my favourite monster? I uh, do really like the black dog. I am finding the big cat thing quite fascinating at the moment, but also very frustrating. Um, but no, I'll stick with the black dog at the moment because I really enjoyed the story and it was a great culture and it was a great experience writing it.
It's a fine book, too. Good job. Yeah, we enjoyed it. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to this episode of Monster Talk. You've been hearing an interview with David Waldron, author of Shock, the Black Dog of Bungie. Your hosts were Blake Smith, Ben Radford, and Karen Stolzno. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. Thanks to all of you who have contributed to our show's transcription fund. We have new transcripts coming out very soon. Special thanks this week to Robert Smith, Philip Stratton, Blackbird Studios, and Maxwell Ree. We have some fun interviews coming up on monstrous creatures, both well-known and obscure. I hope you'll stay tuned. Sound effects for today's episode are all from freesound.org, and links to the particulars are in the show notes. Monster Talk theme song is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today. The the Egyptian link to cats is still very strong. You have uh, Basts, the uh, female cat-headed goddess, uh, and people who, uh, like cats, are, I think, known as bastards. No, no. <laughs> mm.